0: Good morning again. Good to see you. Welcome to all of our guests who are with us this morning. This is a really good attendance for, uh, it's been literally four weeks since we've gathered together in person. And to um, be honest, I guess it's kind of like riding a bike. You never forget actually how to do it. But uh, coming on the campus this morning, just kind of getting back into the normal routine of what we do on the Sunday mornings, it felt different. It felt awkward because it's been so long. And I don't like that sort of. A feeling so uh, it's good to see you, and I'm um, welcome to all of our guests, those who are joining us online. Uh, we're glad you're able to join us this morning as well. If you want to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. But uh, as I said earlier, and, and Ricky just prayed, but today's a special uh, day for us as a church as we are going to uh, vote on a candidate. We've been working through a process for the last number of months. Uh, with our, our elder team has been leading that, and then our personnel team has been involved and finance and all of that. But we have got to the point where we believe that we found the guy, the man that uh, the Lord has given us to lead our student ministry, and that is Nate West. So if you're here Wednesday, you got to hear from him. There are some uh, some bio sheets that were in the foyer. I don't know if they're still out there. You might have picked them up. But if you're curious and you come in this morning, you remember, and you have no idea what we're talking about, I would encourage you at some point between now and the uh, the, the next hour that you go get that and maybe members meeting ask a few questions, but we're excited about what we feel like the Lord is leading us to do as a church. Nate's got a lot of talents. He's going to obviously lead our student ministry, do a phenomenal job there, but he's a, he's, I think he's going to be more of a utility player for us. And I haven't really said this to you, but I love baseball. I don't watch major league. I watch college. And so my team started their season yesterday in Texas, playing Texas Tech and beat them 13 to nine. Can I get an amen for that? But in baseball, there's this. This type of player that's called a utility player. It's a guy that can switch it, a guy can play multiple positions, and I think Nate is going to kind of play that for us. He can obviously play in the music's end of it. He can sing. uh, He can do a lot of graphics, arts, video stuff. So he's going to be able to come alongside and, and undergird a lot of what we are already doing and make it that much better. So excited about what the Lord is doing there. Philippians chapter one, we're going to launch into a new series today. Uh, working through the book of Philippians. You know, there's nothing better than receiving a, a letter. And that's what the book of Philippians is. It's a letter. And so there's nothing better than receiving a note, receiving a letter uh, from someone you love, a friend, a family member, someone you haven't seen in a while. We got some of those type of notes during our quarantine earlier this month. It was nice to get that side up of encouragement. But in today's world, we don't typically send a lot of letters. We, we send messages through text. We send it through email. We send it through some sort of social media platform. And, and so our messages tend to be electronically delivered. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the, the bulk of what we do. It's the bulk of how we communicate. But there, I believe, is something special about a handwritten note, a handwritten written letter by a loved one sent to you to encourage and to bless you. And if you're a fan of the show Survivor, a show that's been on for I believe over 20 years on CBS, I've been watching it almost from the very beginning. It's one of my favorite shows. It's really the only reality show I've ever cared about. And uh, so I've always watched it. And one of the things that happens in that show is, well, first of all, you got 18 or so people dropped off into the, the midst of this barren, exotic type of environment. They're competing against one another. Strangers dropped on this island don't know each other thrown into a whirlwind of harsh living conditions the social dynamic the stress of the game challenges all of that working together plus very limited food resources and what happens is is it is a stressful nightmare for those contestants but if they can make it to about that 3 week mark in the game which is a 39 day game if they can meet that 21 to 25 day uh, barrier, then many times they are rewarded with a letter from home. And it always amazes me to watch these people who've seemed so harsh and so burly and, and so uh, strong and, and maybe even malignant at times, when they get that note from home, that letter from home, they break down and weep. It amazes me the emotions that come out of some of these contestants that seem to be so hard and, and so callous. I think the reason for that is, if you've watched the show, is that many times at this point, these contestants are barely hanging on. They're contemplating quitting. They're contemplating walking away from the game. They're not sure if they're ever going to be able to make through the next challenge, the next reward, the next anything without quitting or getting voted off. And so, hearing a word from home encourages them, emboldens them, and helps them to stick it out to the end. Today, as we begin this new journey, walk, working and walking through Philippians, this letter, this epistle, it, it, we're going to see is something that Paul's writing to believers who made up the church there in. Let me just share a little bit of background of what this church was like, where it was located. Obviously, it is in the city of Philippi. It's a Roman uh, district in the Macedonian district. Paul went there, traveled there. He heard the Macedonian call from the Lord to go over and to take the gospel there. And so up to this point, Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, and, and most likely Luke, have been prevented from, by the Holy Spirit from entering into that sort of district. And so they've just been traveling around the modern-day Turkey area. But God begins to call out to Paul and tell him to go over to Macedonia and to preach the gospel. And so they immediately grab a ship and cross the Aegean Sea. They go into Neapolis and then on into Philippi and begin to preach the gospel city of Philippi, was the leading city in that Roman district. And so the, there in Acts chapter 16, verses 12 through 40, we see the story of how this church was introduced to the gospel, how it was birthed and launched and became what it was when Paul is writing here to the church in Philippi that we have in this letter. But what we see there is when Paul and his companions arrived, they immediately, on the Sabbath day, went to a place where god fears were gathering together to pray, and they began to preach the gospel. And as they preached the gospel, there was a woman there from Thyatira, from the city of Thyatira, her name was Lydia. And she heard the gospel, and the Bible tells us in Acts 16, that not only her, but also her household believed the gospel, and on that day, the church at Philippi was birthed. Many believe that the church met in her house. So this church was launched. Now, the Bible tells us also in Acts chapter 16 that Paul stayed a significant amount of time there in the city. We don't know how long, but he stayed a significant amount of time, enough time to establish a church. We also know that he visited the church at least two more times on his missionary journeys. And so when we come to the the point of this letter being written back to the church at Philippi, it's no longer A.D. 51 when the church was birthed. Now it's around A.D. 61, and Paul is no longer traveling around the, the countryside preaching the gospel. Now Paul is in Rome, and he's a prisoner there awaiting trial before the emperor. Paul, rather than being concerned about his own situation, what we see is that Uh, even in the first chapter, that his situation was so dire that there was literally at any moment news coming that his life was going to be ended, that he would be executed. So rather than being concerned about himself, Paul's concerned, as always, for the people of God, concerned for the church. He perceives a variety of pressures lurking in the wings pressures that could damage this fledging Christian community. He knows he cannot visit them. He knows he's not going to be able to leave and and carry on as normal, though he hopes for that, he prays for that, he wishes for that. But he wants to write and encourage this church to maintain basic Christian commitments and to be on guard against an array of dangers, temptations that are coming from within and dangers and opposition that are coming from without. So he writes this letter it's not just a typical letter what we find here is that this is a pretty informal letter it's not a formal it's an informal it's a heartfelt letter it has this this uh this aurora about it this aura about it you know I'm messing up my words here you guys I've heard it this week so many times from our staff and some of you other knuckleheads that, that I create words that when I just mispronounce the word I'm sitting here thinking they're going to think I'm trying to come up with another word, but I can do that. It's legal. So what happen, what's happening here in this letter is he, he's writing to friends. He's writing to family members. He's writing to the family of faith, writing to encourage, writing to love them, writing to admonish them in the faith. And so throughout this letter, this warm, friendly letter to the church at Philippi, Paul speaks of, and he calls for rejoicing. He calls them to have joy. He calls them to enjoy the things of God, even though the circumstances of their life are not very enjoyable. And I like what J.A. Bingle has Uh, correctly, I believe, surmise the content of this letter to be. And he says this simply, in this simple statement, Paul basically speaking, I rejoice, now you rejoice. Paul, throughout this letter, is using himself as an example, saying, if you look at my situation, if you look at the circumstances of my life, there's nothing to be joyful about, and yet I have joy. And over and over again, you see him to say, you see him telling the people of God to rejoice, like chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. How are we able to do that? Well, we know Paul... Is not writing from some sort of ivory tower of peace and security. That this, this sentiment is not being projected from that sort of place. No, Paul is writing from a prison. He's writing from the standpoint of a prisoner. He's awaiting news that could signal his death at any moment. And he says, rejoice. William Barclay commenting on the subject of joy says this, He says the one thing that all men need to learn about joy is that joy has nothing to do with material things or with a man's outward circumstances. It is the simple fact of human experience that a man living in the lap of luxury can be wretched, but a man in the depths of poverty can overflow with joy. See, Paul's a great example that your joy and your ability to rejoice has nothing to do with what your life is like today. It has everything to do with who you serve, and it's God. Joy comes from him. We rejoice in the Lord. And so I just wonder this morning, sitting here on the backside of Uh, of the month of February, moving into the month of March, spring is on the horizon, and we were hoping and wishing for better days from all sorts of circumstances. Do we possess joy? Are we able to rejoice in the Lord when the circumstances are less than desirable in our lives? Where are you at today when it comes to the joy factor? And we all know the past 11 months have been a serious challenge. We've witnessed, literally, we've witnessed our world turned upside down. Everything that we knew, we don't know anymore. Everything that we thought was, was sensible, everything that we thought was logical, now there seems to be no sense and no logic. We've experienced lockdowns and quarantines and job loss and freedoms removed from us, civil unrest, financial stress, political upheaval. We've experienced the, the uh, closing of schools and all of this has been a terrible, terrible experience. Can I get a witness for that? The worst thing of quarantine for us, I didn't have terrible symptoms, so maybe I can say this or maybe I shouldn't say this, but for me the worst thing was being quarantined. I have to stay home and I'm I'm not necessarily a homebody. and I'm not necessarily one who wants to run around all the time do stuff, but I don't want to just be told, you've got to stay put. Terrible. That was like a, a, just a horrible, horrible experience. And so that's what we've been experiencing for months now. And if we're honest, I bet we would agree that in many ways, these dynamics have stolen our joy, changed our approach to life. So through this study of the book of Philippians, I want us to learn from Paul how to find joy in Christ and in his work despite the circumstances of our lives. This morning, as we begin, what we're going to see in the first two verses of chapter one is that one of the the wonderful graces of God, one of the gifts that God has given us, the thing that he gave Paul and the same he gave to the other believers in the New Testament and he gives to us today is the gift of the local church. I believe one of the reasons Paul was able to say, I have joy when he looks around and he sees a Roman soldier guarding him. When he looks around and he's not able to get on the ship and travel to the next city to preach the gospel. And he's able to say, I rejoice, I have joy. Not because his circumstances were good, but because his God was good and the people of God were good to him as well. The church was there as a strength to embolden him, to encourage him, and to bless him every step He's going to write and tell these believers about Epaphroditus and others, Timothy, who've meant so much to him. So look with me, Philippians chapter 1. Let's read the first two verses, and then I want to share four thoughts about the local church. Paul says this Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. I said earlier this is an informal letter, and this type of letter contains a tone and warmth, a tone of warmth and spontaneity that reflects, uh, as we might see here, an intimacy regarding specific context. It's informal, so Paul's not going to follow a typical pattern you might see in a letter during this era of history. And so when we read this, because we see Paul's speaking about specific times and specific issues going on in the life of that church, it can be hard for us, 2,000 or so years removed, to understand and to be able to connect with everything he is saying. So we've got we to make sure we understand context. We've got to make, make sure we understand history and all of that. And so what, rather than find a systematic outline in this sort of writing, what we find here is more of a conversation between friends. So the letter, we could say, is occasional. It's a set of specific situations that have prompted Paul to write, right? Just like when we get a letter from somebody. You're going through a hard time, you've you've experienced something that's wonderful, someone sends you a note, someone sends you a card, and the situation, the specific set of events has has triggered that, and that's why they are writing. And so the letter is, as Richard Melech suggests, theology in street clothes. It's an applied theology that Paul's laying out for this church as he writes to encourage them. So what we see here in this salutation is that we're given insight into what makes up the local church. I wonder this morning, how will you understand the local church? Now, we're not going to go around and have time of dialogue for you to say, this is what I think about the church or believe about the church. But I wonder this morning, how well do we understand the local church? One of my fears during this COVID season and what we've seen in church after church after church all across America is people saying, I don't need to be with the people. I can watch from afar. My fear in that is that people who call themselves Christians would say, you know what, that's enough. And we treat it just like anything else in our life. It's a, it's a, it's a show to watch. It's a, it's, a, it's a podcast to take in. But there's, it's, it's at arm's length, and we're never with the people of God. That's not the picture you see in the New Testament of the church. They're always together. They're always involved in one another's life. It is a spiritual family. So how do we perceive and how do we understand the local church? Well, as Paul begins this letter, in this salutation, he identifies himself and Timothy as servants. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, that's our English word that we translate servant. It's the Greek word doulos. And so in the English translation, we lose a little bit of the the ump there in the term. So it really means slave. And so the Greek reader here, these Roman citizens who are receiving this letter from Paul would have saw that word doulos and not, thir- not think of a servant like we are translating it, but they would have thought of a bond slave. They would have thought of someone who is a servant from a, from a standpoint of he has no other obligation but to serve the master. And that's how Paul identifies himself And Timothy carries this connotation of humility and servitude. And so Paul and Timothy here are slaves of Christ who have followed the direction of Christ to preach the gospel and plant and establish this church. And so it is from this group of believers we are going to learn what comprises the local church. Four things about the local church. Number one, the local church is made up of saints. I got good news for you this morning. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a saint. You're a saint. Some of you don't look saintly at times. You probably think that about me as well, but you are a saint. And so Paul, that's what he says in addressing this letter. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. This is a comprehensive phrase that describes the Christian community that had been following his preaching of the, the gospel. And so this term saint in the Greek is, is hagias. It means to be separated. It means to be set apart. That's what we are as the people of God. We are the separated, set apart people of God, set apart unto God in our lives. It's the equivalent to the Hebrew idea of the Old Testament of being, as I said, Separate or set apart. So the the saints are the separated ones in a double sense. Negatively, they're set apart, set aside from the things of the world that are evil. And then positively set aside in dedication and service to the Lord. Term here in the New Testament is in every case but one found in the plural. Always speaking of saints. Always speaking of plural. It's never speaking of one particular person. It's always in the plural. The only time we see this term in the singular is in Philippians chapter four, I believe verse 21, 20 or 21. And it actually is applying to a body. It's speaking of the church, but it's used in the singular. So it's referring to a group. Local church is made up of saints. Now, what does this mean? What we see in the New Testament is that the church is the successor to that sacred community of Israel we see in the Old Testament. So that ancient call of God to his people, be holy for I am holy, is now attached to the local church. We are to be holy because we are in Christ Jesus. We are the new people of God. So the church is the people of God who will experience all of those eschatological blessings and purposes that we studied and walked through as we went through the book of Revelation. The believers have been made saints, they have been set apart. Now, this distinction has been made through the redemptive activity of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think of the word saint, and we think of someone being saintly, we tend to lean toward where our Catholic friends would, would land. And we think of a person who's, who's performed a miracle, or a person who's done certain things, and they've earned the status of sainthood. That is not a picture and a teaching that you see in the Word of God. Sainthood comes through the work and the activity of Jesus. It does not come through the work and the activity of you. Any of you guys who know Jesus make yourself righteous? Any of you do enough good stuff to offset your bad stuff? First of all, you can never do that. We believe the Bible teaches a total depravity that every facet of who you are is totally brave, totally in contrary to the, to the Lordship of Jesus. We are in rebellion against God where we've, we've walked away from him completely. It's only the activity of God that draws us to himself. It's only the activity of God through his son, Jesus Christ, who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He died in our place. His body was bruised and broken there on the cross. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Our blood was not shed. We would be in hell today if we stood on the cross and tried to atone for our sins. Jesus has done that for us. We've sung about it this morning. That last song that we have just sang speaks of how his righteousness has been put onto our account, that we've done nothing to earn that. And so it's the righteousness of God because of what he's done to take our sin, to absorb the wrath of God the Father against our sin. He took all of that and exchanged it for his righteousness. And the Bible talks about it being imputed onto us, put to our account. We're about to hit tax season. And so you may be thinking in in banking terms, financial terms, imputation is this idea of putting into the bank account of someone else. That's what Jesus does for us. That's why we are saints. Not because of what we've done. And so the local church is made up of saints. Today, I wonder how much different would the local church be if, if its members realized their distinctiveness and began to live as saints before God and a watching world. What if we understood that position, the, the relationship, the authority that we enjoy in Jesus? We are the saints of God. Not that we're special people, but God has made us special that he has bestowed upon us his goodness. Today let's remember and understand that as a local church we are made up of saints. Now we're not made we're not yet Perfect. We've not yet been made completely perfect. Positionally, yes. Practically, no. Many of you, if you have kids, were probably in some sort of squabble on the way to church this morning. As I joke often, you got out of the car or out of the van this morning, you put a smile on and you act like everything was okay, but it was not okay on the way to church, right? You that have grandkids, you remember those days when you had little kids. So we're not perfect, and, and yet we take that because we know that, and sometimes I believe we may use it as an excuse for our failings, give an excuse for how we have continued to not walk in righteousness. And instead, let's not do that. Instead, let's lift high our position. Let's lift high our relationship with Jesus and strive to live up and out of our sainthood. we are set apart people of God. Church is made up of saints. Secondly, the church, the local church is formed in a specific location. He goes on to identify these saints who are in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. He's speaking to a specific church in a specific location. Now, it's true that every believer is part of the universal church of Christ, made up of all believers of all time and all places. There is this idea of the universal church of Christ. But as you read through the New Testament, what you see is that in nearly every case that the Bible speaks of the church, it speaks of a local church church of Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Corinth, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossae, and those surrounding cities where that letter was sent. You've got the church in Rome. You've got the church in Jerusalem. You've got the church in in, in other places in Asia Minor. All of these churches are local churches. The church of Philadelphia, the church of Laodicea, right? In Revelation chapter uh, 3, 2 and 3. Church is local. The church is a Local church, a specifically located people of God. And so what we see here is Paul is referring to the local church present in the city of Philippi. This description is further emphasized in chapter 4 verse 15 where he calls them Philippians. Kind of playing on this Roman citizenship that they enjoyed. So when we think of the church and what we see here in the church is that God sovereignly and graciously expresses his community in ways that will specifically and personally connect with people in their own space. From a missional standpoint, we, we describe this as contextualization. And so when we send a team or we send a team of missionaries overseas to reach a certain people group in a certain location, we want to take the gospel, the fundamental message of Jesus Christ and salvation, and we want to, we want to describe it and speak of it in a context that fits that particular culture and geography. That's what you see in these local churches. Right? The church of Philadelphia, the church of Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Corinth. They had all these different cultures. The church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is much different than the church in Rome. And yet they all have the fundamental tenets of the gospel, but they work themselves out in different ways. They may sing different, different songs, culturally they're different. They have different types of people in them. Why? Because culture is different. Culture changes. Methodologies change. But the fundamental aspects of the gospel never change. I'm grateful today that the local church is a specific location with a specific culture. And all of us collectively make up the universal church of Christ. A third thing we see here. The local church is led by servant leaders. Continuing to address those in the church, he speaks to the saints, but he also identifies two other um, designees. Designees, is that a word? What y'all are saying. We see here this idea of servant leaders. First of all, he speaks of the overseer, right? The overseer, overseer. The the Greek word is episkopos. Uh, Some translations will, will translate that term bishop, overseer. So though this term in Paul's writings refer to an office, what we see here is an emphasis on function, that he's speaking of the people who are a part of the church. And there's another interesting aspect of this. He says to all the saints, overseers, and deacons, but he's never again going to address overseers and deacons again in this letter. He's speaking to the church like always. He's just going to lump them in at this moment, which clues us in on a little bit of how the church is constructed, what the church is comprised of, and the church has overseers, has another term would be elders, has pastors. And yes, this is an office, but the emphasis seems to be more on function. The, how do we know that? Well the verb that this noun is derived from means to visit, means to visit in the sense of looking after, caring. For someone else. If we were to go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, we would see there that Paul, in charging the Ephesian elders, which is a, a term that's presbyteros, it's also uh, uh, congruent with this term episkopos, which is also congruent with a third term, poimen, that speaks of shepherd or pastor, he's urging this, this body of leaders. To pay careful attention to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopoi overseers to care for the church of God. This morning, we should rejoice in the fact that God in his grace, God in his goodness, has given the church leaders to servantly lead them in the faith. Look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And we look at the description in Acts chapter 20 of this office or of this function, and we see that all of them describe those who care for God's church. They reveal that the local church is led by servant leaders, not top down authority, not do it my way or the highway, but people who will come alongside the people of God and serving them, leading them deeper and deeper into the faith. The local church led by servant leaders. Fourthly and lastly, the local church is attended to by leading servants. I'm using language here that I've used before. We preached through First Timothy four or five years ago. And as we got to chapter three in First Timothy, and we're walking through these two different categories, that's the language we use. Elders, uh, overseers, uh, pastors, those are all synonymous terms. Those are servant leaders in the church, and the deacons are the leading servants in the church. And this is the ses- second designation here that we see. The term, you probably know the term, is diakonos. It refers to a servant or a minister. So the idea is more of a table waiter. It's someone that's, that's serving others. We see a beautiful picture of this ministry of deacons in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 there. You know the story probably. There was a great squabble within the church. The Greek-speaking widows were beginning to feel like they were not being treated fairly. They didn't feel like their needs were being met. There was a moment where the church literally could split in Jerusalem. And Peter and the other apostles said, Go select seven men who will meet these needs, will take care of these needs within the body of Christ. Christ, and though this term diakonos is not used there specifically, the idea that's later kind of pressed out in the New Testament of this office and function of deacon is modeled there in that picture, that story found in Acts chapter 6. They serve by meeting specific needs. And so as we look at this function of deacon, we see that they're a wonderful gift to the church. What they do is they come alongside the ministry of the overseer, elder, pastor, and they shoulder some of the responsibilities that's on them to care for the flock of God, to minister and to meet the needs of the people. So the local church is attended to by leading servants. We have great deacons in our church serve faithfully and serve wonderfully and serve selflessly the body of Christ day in and day out. How was Paul able to say, I rejoice? How was he able to say, you need to have joy? When everything around you seems to be so joyless and there's nothing to be excited about, nothing to have joy about, how was it that he was able to contain and to retain his joy? Perhaps it was the faithful and selfless ministry of those overseers and deacons along with the entire church body there in the city of Philippi who loved him, who prayed for him, who sought to meet his needs time and time and time again. They brought joy to his life so that he could retain his joy in the face of mounting stress and hardship. Here's what we know about life. Hard. Can I get an amen? I see some heads shaking. Life easy for you guys? Somebody stand up and test them and say, man, life has never been as good as it is right now. Life has never been as easy. If that's you. Awesome. I would also warn you, tomorrow will come. Right? Tomorrow's coming. It's been said that you're either in a storm, you've come out of a storm, or you're headed into a storm. That's true. True with weather. I mean, we got sunshine today, cold temperatures, but bless God, sunshine. I forgot what the sun was until the other day. It kind of cre- peeked through the clouds, and I thought, what is that? It's like some sort of nuclear thing going off in the hemisphere, and, and we're not sure what's going to happen? No, it's the sun. Tomorrow it may rain. It may snow later on this week. Sorry about jinxing us there. Don't want any more of that. Life is hard. What we know as believers is that nowhere in the Bible is God promised an easy and stress-free life experience outside of heaven. This side of heaven, it's going to be difficult. So on the contrary, what we see is we are almost assured difficulty and suffering. So how do we retain our joy in the Lord? First, what we see here is we realize that joy can never be found in anything but the Lord. You're not going to find it in money. You're not going to find it in in material things. You're not going to find it in relationships. You're not going to find it in family. Here's a kicker. You're not going to find joy simply in church and the people of God you're in the church long enough, what do you find? They're as messed up as you are. We're just a bunch of sinners. We're, we're literally a bunch of hypocrites. We're like Paul in Romans chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I find myself not doing. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing those. I had this conversation with the Lord in the shower this morning. I'm like, why do we struggle with all of this? We're in good company if Paul struggled with it. And so if you're in the church long enough, you're going to find out that we're not all that in a bag of chips. We've got our baggage. We've got our brokenness. We're all in a hospital for misfit people. God is putting us back together, piece by piece. So joy can't come from anything this world has to offer. Joy can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul here mentions that in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. What do we know about grace? Grace is the free, spontaneous, and unmerited love of God given to sinful men. That's what grace is. It's something you didn't deserve. It's something you didn't earn. It was just freely given to you, though you did not deserve it. It's this gift of grace, we know it's found in Jesus. It makes peace with God possible. That's what he says here. Grace to you and peace from God. How can we ever have peace with God? It's not because you have laid down your weapons because in your sin you'll never do that. You may become religious. You may become... Uh, uh, uh very meaningful in what you do, but apart from Jesus transforming who you are from the inside out, you can never not live in rebellion against God. But when Jesus graciously comes into your life and he says, I have forgiven your sins, I have cleansed you. If you will receive that, I will change you. What happens there is he becomes your Lord, your Savior. You're on his team, which means you're no longer in opposition to God the Father. And so you can have peace with God rather than being at war with God like you have been since you were born. The Bible here explains that it's in our sin and in our rebellion and in our warring against God that brings us judgment. However, through the finished work of Jesus there on the cross, our sin can be forgiven, it can be reconciled, all of it can be absorbed by the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ and we can enjoy peace with God the Father knowing the war is over. We also realize God has blessed us with other believers, those who make up the church. They encourage, they strengthen, they help to meet our needs through the ups and the downs of life. And this morning, if you don't realize what you have in the local church, you are missing a lot. God, you're missing a lot. I don't know how we go through life and not understand the necessity of the local church in our life. I don't know how you do it. I would say you're not doing it your life is probably in shambles and and you're not expressing the joy of the Lord because you think you can and you should and you must go it alone. But God knows we can never go it alone. We need Him and we need the people of God in our lives. So this morning, do you have joy? Are you able to rejoice in all circumstances? I didn't say smile and say this is wonderful when everything around you is crumbling. I'm not saying, man, be happy. No, happiness is temporary. You can have joy even in the midst of deep, deep. Comes from comes from his goodness in your life. How do you get that? It Comes first of all through relationship with Jesus. Then as a follower of Jesus, much of that is sustained through God's gift of the local church. Walk in fellowship with God and with his people. Joy is returned. This morning, the Bible tells us good news, gives us bad news, and it gives us some really best news. Good news is, you know this, God loves you. God designed you. God created you for himself. God has, has done everything necessary to be in relationship with you. I love Colossians 1.16. You've been made by God and for God is what it tells us. Here's the bad news. You're a sinner like we've been talking about. You're messed up. You've walked away from God. You're in rebellion against Him. You're at war with Him. Cut off. Transgressed. There's no hope for you. You deserve a devil's hell. The best news is, is as we sang that first song, God so loved the world, He ate. It wasn't that you were so lovely that God gave a gift to you. No, you're despicable and horrible in rebellion against him. But God is so good that he gave. God is so gracious that he gave. God is so wonderful that he gave so that you could have have an eternal relationship with him in heaven. That's the goodness and the best news of the Bible. Amen?